We're in week five of a series called Family Circus. So we've already talked about motherhood. We talked about marriage. We talked about honoring your parents. Last week, we got the legend, Pastor Steve Poe, who came and talked about grandparenting. Was that good, everybody? Well, today I get to talk about parenting. And here's why I feel like, okay, I'm I'm not quite there yet. I have a 15-year-old son. Uh, He's a sophomore. His name is Corbin. I have a 12-year-old daughter. Her name is Quincy, and she'll be a seventh grader. And then I have a victory lap little baby. Uh, He is four years old. His name is Keller. He will tell you he is four and a half. If you're asking how old he is, is, don't forget the half. That's important. But I have not completed the parenting journey yet. So I am one parent speaking to you as a parent on equal playing field. Spent my time, my last 19 years in ministry with kids and students. I've read a lot of books. I've studied hard for this message. I've been diving into God's word. But no, it's not going to be complete because I'm not complete as a parent. And I'm journeying with you. Which is why we have a parenting conference coming up. To fill in the gaps that I leave behind today, okay? And if you have not signed up for that parenting conference... Seriously, do it today. Text NEXT to 85379. It'll be on the link tree there. And here's the deal. We have an early bird registration. It'll be $10 off per person this week. And we ask you to do do that because we want to provide the breakout speakers and the amount of breakout speakers so that we know who's coming and how to accommodate, okay? Also, our family ministry pastor, Aaron, he said, what would really get them to sign up? And he's like, what if we offered a free Uh, stay at Great Wolf Lodge to one family who signed up pre-registration. So if you are a child in the room, right now, grab your parents, say, stop listening to this guy, sign up for that conference, because I want to be able to do that, okay? All right, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started with today's message. God, I just thank you. Uh, I just thank you for this opportunity. God, I pray that you would speak. If there's anything that is not of you, I pray that it would fall away. God, I pray that your word would be what speaks the loudest to us and that we would hear what you have to say to us. God, I want to also pray uh, for those in the room who a parenting message is hard for. God, you say you are near to the brokenhearted, and so I pray that you would be incredibly near uh, to those that um, are hoping to be a parent, maybe have lost a child, are, uh, are grieving some things with their old adult children that they just want God, I pray that you would just provide them the comfort, the wisdom, the peace through this message. God, for all the churches that are preaching right now about you, God, we want to make your name famous. And God, we want to link arms with those churches. God, I thank you for the network, the Northview Network, and I pray that we would just, you would just give us more opportunity to link arms with churches uh, so that we could be for the local church, not just Northview, but all local churches. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I get to share today, I want you to know that every time I get a chance to come up here and share a message, I first write it out, and then I preach it to my wife. So then Brooke takes it, she tears it all apart, completely rewrites it, and whatever you get to hear is what she says, okay? (laughs) So that's where we're at today, and as I was preparing for this, I shared it with her, and she's like, are you going to start off with statistics? Because I feel like you did statistics last time you talked about parenting. I was like, well, no, 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 there was a couple messages in between. But I did share statistics, but these were in 2018. Something happened in 2019. Anybody remember what that was? We all block it out. There was a pandemic. And well, the statistics changed, so I felt like we need to kind of jump into that. So I pulled some 2023, some teen mental health statistics I think we need to have to shape our conversation. First of all, since 2007, teen depression 
has increased 59%. Let that sink in. 36% of young girls this last year reported being extremely anxious daily. Every day. 36%. That's crazy and not okay. 25% of teens this year were diagnosed with a mental health condition. It's been accelerated. Let's bring it home to Indiana. I couldn't find 2023 data. This is 2021, but let's bring it home here. In Indiana, the percentage of high school students who seriously considered attempting suicide increased to 27.7% in 2021 compared to just 198 2015. And if there's ever a speaker that says just 19.8 of our kids ex- considered taking their life, you should say that's not okay. But then it increased to, 2000, or to 27%. We are living in a crazy time, right? Our world is so divided. You're right or you're wrong. You're my enemy or you're my friend. I, social media algorithms are linking us together, causing mob mentality, putting us with people that only think like us, and we get disagreements with everyone else. Not only that, the pressures of the world are falling on our kids. They're feeling it like crazy. We've removed biblical values from our culture, from our government, from our society. But then we've also done things like replacing them with different values that speak in contrast to God's word. It's hard being a parent, right? I was talking to a grandparent recently. I was like, man, I am so glad that I am not parenting in this day and age because it just feels like the world has changed since when I parented my kids. Well, that's mental health, but how are we doing in the faith realm? 2023 faith trends. I'm going to start, though, with 2018. As of 2018, it was becoming clear that atheism was doubling among Gen Z. Those are born between 1999 and 2015. As of 2019, nearly two-thirds of the U.S. 18 to 29-year-olds who grew up in church tell George Barna, the guy doing this research, they have withdrawn from church involvement as an adult or having been active as a child or a teen. Now, this is as of 2019. What happened in 2019? There was a pandemic. Turn to your neighbor, because Northview, you people are not normal. So just turn to your neighbor and be like, you are not a normal person. Go ahead. Let them know. (laughs) You know that. It's perfect. A little self-awareness for somebody today in the room. Okay? You are not a normal person. Most churches in America are still at 60% of their church attendance pre-COVID. Northview, we've been blessed. For whatever reason, you guys are the exception to the rule. Thank you for being here and being a part of church and being active in your faith. But if our normal church attendance, our people who are faithful and regular, were at 60%, what is that doing to this population who in 2019 were already two-thirds out the door? Well, as of 2021, 44% of Gen Z are now considered nuns. That's not Catholic. That means they have no religious affiliation. There was a quote from this study that I saw, and I thought it was worth reading. It's a teen girl, and she wrote this. My parents raised me to be Christian, but many times I saw in them the opposite of how a Christian should act. 
The example I saw from them was inconsistent. The best way to describe my home growing up was, do as I say, not as I do mentality. After a while, I was just so fed up with the hypocrisy. My family was never truly bad, but if they had lived out what they said they wanted for me, uh, they would have had a bigger part in my faith today. It is crucial for families to emphasize the importance of practicing what you are preaching and being consistent and stable in your faith. If you want them to put God first in everything, make sure you show that God is first in your life. So after reading some of those statistics, you might say, yeah, this is true. Our world has definitely changed. What our kids are experiencing is way different than what we ever experienced before. But before we get really into some of the meat of the message, I want to give you one more quote. Now, this quote's a little longer. So I underlined some things, put some things in a towel. I, I want you to pay attention. So if you want to get an A-plus in church today, you stick with me through this whole quote, okay? All right, so stick with me. Don't give up. Here it goes. It says this. Think about what happens to many young people who are raised with all the benefits of prosperous parents who are cultural Christians themselves. As children, they're taken to church where they hear the parts of the Christian message that their particular church embraces. Although it is rare in our times, what is rare in our times? Maybe they even receive some measure of religious instruction at home. Eventually, they leave home, launch out into the world. Some go to work, some go to college. They face temptations they have not faced before, and they give in to them. At the least, they never read the Bible or make any attempt to develop a spiritual life. Most don't even attempt to take what knowledge is at their disposal and form their own beliefs and convictions. They don't learn to think. They begin to embrace the ideas of which they're exposed. Most of what they hear about Christianity is in a negative context. If they go to church at all, they hear things that either make no sense to them or that they find offensive to the way that they live. They have no grasp of the Bible to compare with what they hear. The result is an attitude towards Christianity that is not only negative, but one that is rooted in a faulty sense of intellectual superiority. The young also have a way of seeing right through the charade of those who profess the faith, but don't live the life. This is certainly not always how it goes, but in general, you could think of this scenario as the genesis of unbelief. Right now at our campuses, if you were able to track for the entire time, get the A+, and you said, yes, I see that happening in our young people today, just raise your hand and say, yeah, I see that happening. Here's why I pulled that quote, because I pulled it from a book called Real Christianity, written by a guy named William Wilberforce in 1797. So we often say, man, the world, it has changed so much, but then we go, wait, We're still facing the same things, the same problems. And what I like about both of those two quotes is they still point to the same solution, and that was parents. Parents who take an active role in their kids' faith. Parents who live it out. But sometimes parents go, whoa, that's that's a heavy job. Like in this world, parenting can feel like a burden, But the Bible's very clear. Kids are not a burden. Here's what the Bible says about our kids. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. 
Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. We, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Parents, your kids are a blessing, something we get to steward. God, he entrusted you. He said, you can do this, and I'm going to give you this blessing, and you get the opportunity to teach them, to raise them, to grow them. And like I said, it's a daunting task, but you can do it. I've shared this before, but when your child is born, you have 936 weeks from the time they are born until they graduate from high school. Just 936 weeks. It goes fast. And if you were to think about that on a timeline. But the other thing to think about, from the moment your child is born, they're every day separating themselves from you. They're naturally pulling apart. And that is natural. So we as parents, as we are journeying with them, we have to transition and change our roles to match the stage at which they are at. So as they get started from zero to three, I like to say that your role as a parent is to be the protector. How many of you parents remember the day your first child was born? Remember that? You were in the hospital, the baby's right there, right next to the bed, and the nurse came in and was like, would you like me to take the baby to the nursery? And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. I will never be outside of three feet from this child between now and when they're 18 years old. I just won't do it. And then that child cried all night and screamed. Mine did. And the next day, the nurse comes in, and you're like, just, could you just please take this baby to the nursery for like an hour? I just need to sleep. I got like no sleep. And then day three rolls around, and they're like, all right, it's time to take him home. And you're like, What? I couldn't even make it one day without sending him to the nursery. You're telling me I have to take this thing home and I have to care? You didn't train me. And they're like, it's great. Just protect it. And so we do. We buy the plugs for the outlets. We get the locks for the kitchen cabinets. We get the pads for the corners, the baby gates for the stairs, the fence for the yard. We put knee pads on it when it starts to crawl. We put a helmet on it in case it runs into the wall. <laughs> take away all the good tasting food. Replace it with organic kale chips and veggie straws. Unless you're part of the Broadbeck household, then we eat Little Debbie's. So if you want good snacks, come on over. But we do that. We just protect, 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 protect. But if all we ever do is protect our kids, we become what social scientists call a helicopter parent. You know what a helicopter parent is? It's that parent that just hovers over top of their kid all the time, everywhere they go, never letting them fall, don't let them scrape their knee, never let them fail, do all their homework for them, Right? We tell them that they're best at everything, even though everybody else on the team can be. They're the worst. They're not the best. We give them a trophy just for showing up, even though they were the last place team. We do all this to protect, 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 because it just feels right to us just to protect our kids. But social scientists are telling us, you know, that, that might not be the best technique because we now have college students who are more immature than ever before. We have parents who have to call and give wake-up calls to their kids in college to make sure that they're getting to class on time because they can't do it on their own. Parents are showing up to their first job interview with their kids. <laughs> you don't believe me? A couple months ago, my wife was at the hair salon. As she's in there, this 17-year-ish girl comes in and her mom comes with her. The manager says, oh, let's do the interview. The mom says, do you mind if I join? 
to which my wife pulls out her phone and begins to live text me the entire conversation. <laughs> She's like, this is unbelievable. You have to listen to what this mom is saying. She won't even let her daughter talk. But we just protect, we protect, we protect, we protect. At our first parenting conference, we had Dr. Tim Elmore come. If you want to read a great book, you need to read the book, uh, The 12 Mistakes That Every Parent Makes by Dr. Tim Elmore. But he showed this picture, which I thought was awesome. This is a playground from 1910. <laughs> Look at this dude right here. He's just like, just hanging out 20 feet above the ground. Just... Contrast that with what my child, Corbin, experienced in elementary school. One day he comes home, he's like, Dad, they put caution tape all over the monkey bars. And then a couple weeks later, he's like, Dad, they removed the monkey bars from the playground because too many kids had gotten hurt. So what do we do? We built monkey bars in my basement. <laughs> I currently have like a whole Ninja Warrior thing for my four-year-old to swing from the ceiling which I think is a brilliant idea, but my pediatrician might disagree. We'll see. Uh, I think Corbin and I were adding it up Friday. I was like, how many bones you broken, buddy? He's like, I can't remember if I'm on five or six. And I'm like, well. But we can't just protect, 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 because eventually our kids grow. And when they get older, they start to move to a, a place where they need to learn, right? And we have to become the teacher. Up until about puberty, our kids think a certain way. They think black, white, right, wrong. They understand right and wrong. They don't think in that gray space. And in that time, they need to be taught and defined, and the rules need to be set, what is right, what is wrong. And who has God put in position and told, you are to be the primary person to do that? It's you as a parent. That is your job. Nobody else was assigned by God to get to do that. You, as mom or dad, you get to help define that. Because our kids, they think in right and wrong. Don't believe me. My daughter, Quincy, was just the most clear-cut right and wrong thinker growing up. Okay, so, so in Northview Kids, you know, they do a great job at sharing the gospel. Um, and in our house, we like to share the gospel with our kids so they understand it. And so Quincy knew Romans says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So she knew there's a real heaven and there's a real hell. She also knows that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so one day she was playing over at the neighbors and we weren't present, and she said to them, are you guys Christians? <laughs> to which... Created an awkward moment later in the day when the neighbor brought Quincy home and said, so, Quincy told me I'm going to hell today. <laughs> so I was like, we're still working on articulating the gospel. Uh, sorry about that. But our kids, they think right and wrong, and we need to help define that for them. I want to say this because I do have some concern with the direction that the schools in our nation are going. I believe that we have taken what was once filled with biblical principles, characteristics, and we've taken them and removed them from our schools, which I, I kind of understand in the public sector. But I also think what we've done now is replaced those with values that are in direct opposition to God's word. 
And that's where I'm concerned. However, as a parent who has two kids in public schools, I also want to say this. My family has been blessed with some of the best teachers that we could ever ask for in those schools. We have been the benefit of it since they were in elementary school, middle school, even into high school. We have some incredible teachers in our schools. And um, this, we try to get to know our teachers. We don't have them over for dinner, but we try and get to know who are the teachers so we know what's going on. We try and stay active in the lives of the school. I teach crew at one of the schools so I can be around. And, and I did all pro dads when I was growing up. And my wife's been involved in all the... We want to be involved in the schools. We want to be for the schools. But my, my daughter, she had this group of teachers this year. There were four teachers on her bay. And, man, we absolutely love them. They were actually my son's teachers when he was in sixth grade. We think they're the greatest. Well, she comes home from the last week of school, and she's like, Dad, I got lunch detention today. And I was like, what? And she's like, well, my friends and I wanted to hang out with our teachers, so we got lunch detention on purpose so we could sit in his room and hang out with him. <laughs> and I'm like, what kind of teacher is that? Well, here's what the best teachers do. They care deeply about their students. They see a better future in their students. They're passionate about the curriculum, and they correct when a student gets off course. They care deeply about a student. They see a better future for the student. They're passionate about the curriculum, and they correct when a student gets off course. We have some amazing teachers. A couple Years ago, I got invited by a principal to come hang out with him and have a meeting with him. And, and he was explaining to me, this was just after the pandemic had ended. And he was explaining to me just how difficult it had been for him to be a principal. And he shared with me, he said, Kurt, I have been treated off, awfully by non-Christians. But I've been treated equally as awful by Christians. And then our conversation shifted, and he started talking about the kids. He started talking about his calling. He talked about why he was in the schools, why he even took the job of principal in the first place. He talked about what he was doing to be in the hallways, to care for them and love them. He talked about the initiatives they were doing. He talked about the passion that he had because not every kid has a great mom or a dad and how he wants to be able to be there to be just some influence on these kids. And you could tell his passion in that moment. And as I was looking, I saw on his wall a picture frame that was framed. In the middle of it, it said, be the light. And I was like, that's it. Because Jesus says, the light should shine into the darkness. If you're a teacher, principal, bus driver, cafeteria worker, guidance counselor, I just want you to know that our church is for you. We are just celebrating you. Can we give it up for all of those that work in our schools? We need you. So enjoy your summer, but come August, we need you. So be the light because you are making an incredible difference, and I just am so thankful for teachers. We want to be a church that is for our schools. So let's do that together. Let's cheer them on and let's encourage them together, okay? That would be awesome. But I said the four things that a good teacher does. Now, as a parent, it's not hard to care deeply about your student, your kid. It's not hard to see a better future for him. The third thing, though, I said is that we are passionate about the curriculum. What's the curriculum? Well, the Bible says this. All scripture 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, and for correction, and for the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. Our curriculum is God's word. And parents, we need to be, as they are in elementary school, we need to be pouring God's word into their heart. That's why as part of our family framework, starting in second grade, we want to give every kid a Bible. Because up until second grade, our kids are learning to read. Starting then in second grade, they start reading to learn. What should they be reading to learn? They should be learning God's word. It should be something that falls into their hearts, that helps guide them and gives them values that drive their life. If you're a parent and you have an elementary kid and you don't know where to start in helping them understand God's word, reach out to your kids director, your student pastor, email me only nice things at kurt.broadbeck at northviewchurch.us. And I would love to help you pick the right Bible. I'd love to help you pick devotionals. I'd love to help you figure out how to develop a rhythm of teaching God's word in your home because that's your role. But not only that, I said we don't just passionate about the curriculum. We offer correction when we're off course. Parents, we need to be disciplining our kids. I see so many parents today that are stepping back from disciplining their kids. When we discipline, it helps reinforce right and wrong. The Bible says it this way. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Parents, we can't shy away from disciplining our kids just because I think we live in a world that says we shouldn't do that. Appropriate discipline is appropriate. It does produce righteousness. And as a good teacher... We do that for our kids to help them understand right and wrong. But eventually, we have to move on. Puberty hits. The brain begins to change, and our role needs to change too. We need to become a coach. Brain research is showing us that the brain is still developing and develops up until the age of 25. Men, God took a little more time on us. Ours is like still working until like we're 28 before it's fully. I think for me, it was like 35, okay? So the last part of our brain, one of the last parts of our brain that develop is called the prefrontal cortex. That's the part of your brain that helps you realize that the decision you'd make today affects your future. So our teenagers, they now begin to think gray, but they still have not developed fully that ability to go, my decision today affects my future. So when you turn to a teenager and they do something dumb, you go, what were you thinking? And they go, I don't know, I wasn't. They're telling the truth. Like, they just, they don't know. Uh, but they are learning how to make decisions. And we actually aid in helping them become decision makers if we transition and help coach them. So what do great coaches do? Well, right now, I am coaching three- to five-year-old soccer. At the same time, I'm coaching 13- to 15-year-old baseball. So with three- to five-year-old soccer... These kids, they don't listen to me because they don't understand. With 13 to 15-year-olds, they don't listen to me because they don't think I understand. (laughs) Apparently, they watch some baseball YouTube video, and now they all know better than me. I don't know. But here's how great coaches do it. At three to five-year-old soccer, the coach is on the field. And so I'm running around behind my kids going, 
spread out. Hey, Lucy, get off the ground. Hey, pass over there. Hey, Lucy, get back off the ground. Hey, we need to go this way. Hey, go the other direction. We're going the wrong way. Don't shoot at that goal. It's not our goal. You shot at the goal. You scored a goal. You scored a goal. Next time, score the goal for our team, right? This is, <laughs> this is what I'm doing. But eventually, the league says, hey, coaches, you have to get off the field. So have you ever seen the first couple years of coaches off the field? They stand back. The kids are on the field, and the coach is still losing their mind. Lucy, get up off the ground. Everybody spread out. Hey, pass over there. Hey, you're going the wrong way. Don't shoot at that goal. We've been shooting at the wrong goal for four years, right? <laughs> but eventually the players start to understand the game. And then the coach can get a little quieter, but the coach does this. He says, everybody, come here. Here's the game plan today. Here's all the plays that we're going to run. You got those? Yep, perfect. All right, get back on the field. All of a sudden, we're watching on the field, and all of a sudden, Lucy, Lucy, no, no. Hey, sub, sub, sub. Hey, go in for Lucy. Lucy, come here. You're on the bench for a second. Hey, I noticed when you were out there, you went that way, and the rest of the team went that way. What were you thinking? Well, I was thinking that maybe if I did that, I'd be able to like, trick them all, and I'd go this direction. I was like, well, did you realize that when you went that way, not only were you not successful, but the rest of the team wasn't? Yes. Okay, you think you can run this play? Yeah. Okay, go back out there. Now, all of a sudden, they run the play, and here's what the best coaches do. Lucy, you did it. Not we, right? You did it. Because we're training them on how to run the plays. Now I'm coaching 13 to 15-year-old baseball, and the head coach had an awesome idea at the end of the season. We took our 15-year-olds and we said, hey, you guys are setting the batting orders. You're setting the fielding lineup. You're doing the pregame speech. You're going to, doing the postgame affirmations. You're selecting the player of the game. In-game adjustments we're going to make, but we'll listen to your wisdom because you are the coach on the field because you have to learn what it means to coach. That's what we're trying to do with our kids. We're helping them along the way, age appropriate, all through these stages, begin to develop a framework for how to make decisions because eventually they're going to leave our home. And when they leave our home, we want them to choose us as the mentor. Now, I want you to see a few things. On here, you as a parent get to choose the role of protector. You get to choose the role of teacher. You get to choose the role of coach. But you don't get to choose to be the mentor. The mentee has to choose the mentor. That's how mentorship works. How do we get to a point where they choose us as their mentor? Well, Colossians says this. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Another version of this says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Well, how could we exasperate them? If we go back to this chart, if all we do is protect, they say we become a helicopter parent, we also become something else. It's called a smother. You know what a smother is? It's a mother who smothers, right? Where all we do is we're like all over our kids all the time. And eventually they're like, can I just get some independence? And eventually they leave the home and they're like, oh my goodness, this feels so good to be free. I'm not going back. Or if all we do is teach, this is how we do it, right and wrong. And then the answer is always, because I said so. The moment you can make a decision on your own, you're like, whew, this feels really, really good to not have to just do what I'm told all the time. But it's my belief. And again, this is where I'm going to fall short as a teacher today. It's because my kids aren't there yet. But it's my hope 
It's what I want. When my kids leave my home, I hope that Corbin and Quincy and Keller turn back to me and Brooke and choose us as their mentors because we did a good job at moving through these phases so that they look back to us and say, we need to rely on your wisdom. Now, another thing I need to see of all these terms up here, one that I didn't put was the term friend. I certainly want a friendship with my kids. I think I already have a friendship with my kids. However, I believe friend is a generic title that's thrown to so many people. And God, when he designed the family and when he gave me my kids, he allowed me to carry a title that nobody else gets to carry in the life of my kids, and that's dad. And I am not going to lay down that specific authority title, that opportunity title, for something that's generic. And I don't want that for my kids. I have an amazing dad. And he is a friend of mine, but man, he is not my friend. He is my dad, and I need a mentor in him. And I don't want to lay that down for the sake of being a friend. But I want to wrap up, but I have a couple things I want to say before we do, because I think there's something missing yet from our chart. And that is, okay, so what are we doing? Well, Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I've heard this preached before, and some people preach it as a promise from God. I don't think it is. I think it's a proverb by a really wise man. In fact, the wisest man that ever lived named King Solomon. But you know what? I know a lot of really incredible parents and probably some really incredible parents in this room who did everything they could, did their best, and because our kids are free will individual, they're not making decisions that we would have made. And we don't get to go, man, that means they were a terrible parent. That's not the point of this message. So if you've heard that, shake that off. There is one father who's perfect. That's our heavenly father, God. And he instilled free will in his children. And there are many of his own children, even as a perfect father, that are not choosing to follow his ways. However, that doesn't mean the principle isn't still really important. And what it means is King Solomon, he's given this advice to his kids. He's like, we actually have to do something, instill something that will be an anchor to our kid's life, and that is some values. You see, our roles, I told you they have to change, and yes, we'll protect in certain ways, but here's what never changes. You know what you never stop protecting? Your values. They never change. You know what never changes from being right and wrong? Your values. You know when you're coaching, what you're coaching towards, your values. So that one day when your kid calls you up on the phone and says, Dad, I need some advice, what are we going to point him back towards? Their values. But in order to teach our values, you know what? We actually have to know our values. A few years ago, well, it's, it's been, I've been here 19 years. When I first got to Northview, I started having kids. There were four kids in my youth group. They were just awesome kids. So I said to their parents, why are your kids so good? And they said, oh, when we first started parenting, we sat down and we're intentional. What are the things that we are going to instill? What are the values going to instill in our kids? And we spent time, we figured it out, 
we then made a thing and we hung it on our wall. And every time we corrected our kids, we pointed them towards one of our values. Every time that we were teaching them something, we anchored it to one of our values. Anytime we celebrated them, we were celebrating one of our values. That couple, it was Mark and Karen Crawl. Mark Crawl is one of our executive pastors. Karen is a kids director at our, was at our Carmel campus for a long time. They had incredible kids. They knew their values. They helped Brooke and I develop our values. Their son, Aaron, grew up. He became our family ministry pastor right now. And he told me the other day, he's like, I would love to help every family at Northview develop their family values. So we did. So if you're a parent, pull out your phone right now. I'll wait. I don't release till you all do it. So uh, you're going to text the word next to 85379. On the link tree, the top one's going to say, know your values. Here's what it is, a three-part process. The first part is a PDF worksheet. If you are married, it's going to take you about an hour to go through that worksheet. You are defining your own values. We're just giving you guidelines and then giving you some biblical verses to anchor those values to. If you're not married, it'll be a little shorter. You'll have a little less discussion. Unless you're really indecisive, and then you'll have a lot of fights going on internally, okay? Uh, but you're going to do that. Option two then, step two, is you are going to pick the design that you want. Because you're going to want to design, because we want to do the work for you. So you pick it to look like this, these are our values, or like this. You'll pick a white picture frame or a black picture frame. And then step three, you will enter a registration form. It is completely free. But what will happen then, over the next month, your kids director, student pastors, Aaron and his team, will be redesigning all of your values, putting them in a frame, and they will deliver them to your campus. So sometime by mid-July, you will get a values thing to hang on your wall. I think that's an incredible gift, and I'm excited that they're going to do that. So take advantage of the opportunity because they want to do it for you. When families win, we win. We believe that as a church. So let's help our families win. But we can't just know our values. We have to live our values. You heard those two quotes at the very beginning of this message. You know what they both pointed to? The need for parents to do what they say. We have to live our values. 1 Corinthians 1.11 says, Follow my example. This is Paul. As I follow the example of Christ. Parents, you can't just hang something on your wall and not do it. So as you're going through these values and you put them on your wall, it's time for a little self-awareness. You have to say, God, am I embodying these myself? Am I living these out the way that I want my kids to? Am I showing my kids the future or just telling it to them? Because if I'm not showing it, then I got some hard work to do on me. God, change me. Change my heart. You might need to get an accountability partner in your life and say, hey, here's what I'm trying to do for my kids. So I need to work on it for me. Because I have to know my values so I can live my values before I ever get the opportunity to share my values. And how do we share them? Well, Deuteronomy talks about this. It actually talks about it in something called the Shema is what the Jewish culture would refer to this. It means hear or listen, okay? It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. That's the living it. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, 
and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. And you should put a pictured frame that the family ministry team did up somewhere in your walls so that you can remember. That's verse 10. I only put up verse 9. Because we should be teaching and sharing these with our kids. We should keep them in front of our kids all the time. Because we know, parents, you have to know your values so you can live your values, so you can share your values. Would you say that with me? I have to know my values so I can live my values, so I can share my values. We're going to do it one more time. I have to know my values so I can live my values, so I can share my values. Parents, you have what it takes. God, he gave you this blessing because he trusts you with the blessing. He has equipped you. He has given you what you need. So let's do the hard work of being incredible moms and dads because it is going to be the greatest privilege that we ever get to experience on this earth to raise his children.